Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to the OCS Field Guide podcast. Today we are covering the 2019 Patellofemoral Pain Clinical Practice Guideline. We're going to switch things up a little bit this episode and begin with a practice question. Then we'll answer it at the end of the podcast after we've covered the information you need to answer it correctly. A 14-year-old female presents with pain in the front of her left knee that she describes as achy pain under her kneecap. She reports that track and field season started two weeks ago, and her coach is having her do high jump, which she has not done previously, and she jumps off her left foot. She is also running the 200 meter and the 400 meter. She now reports pain going up and down stairs and when sitting in class in addition to her track and field activities. On the NPRS, her usual pain is a 4 out of 10, and pain at its worst is 7 out of 10, which is when she goes downstairs. Which of the following would be the most appropriate initial treatment for this patient? Is it A, prefabricated foot orthosis, B, forward step-down exercises, C, tailored patellar taping, or D, patellar medial glide mobilizations? We'll come back to this question at the end. Let's get this started with some general prevalence and incidence data. Patellofemoral pain is surprisingly prevalent, with most estimates being right around 25% of the population. Depending on what setting you're looking at, the highest incidence is around 12 to 19 years old for sports medicine settings, and 50 to 59 years old for general practice settings, but can occur across the whole lifespan. It is slightly more common in females in all age groups and is surprisingly recurrent with rates of return of symptoms somewhere around 70 to 90%. This is not a self-limiting problem, as was initially thought, with over 50% of adults reporting unfavorable outcomes 5 to 8 years after diagnosis, and 50 to 56% of adolescents still having pain after 2 years. Clearly, it's an area we need to be managing a lot better. Let's move on to clinical presentation. A number of different pathoanatomic features have been implicated over the years in relation to patellofemoral pain, such as internal derangement, cartilage softening, and maltracking, but none of them are strongly correlated with developing patellofemoral pain. Rather, the clinical presentation of pain under or around the patella with functional activities such as squatting, stair negotiation, sports participation, prolonged sitting, and walking are most useful in the diagnosis of patellofemoral pain after ruling out pathoanatomic diagnoses. To restate that, where and when a patient has pain is useful in diagnosing patellofemoral pain, not specific imaging findings. On that note, let's talk a little bit about patellofemoral pain versus patellofemoral osteoarthritis. This is an important takeaway from this CPG, both for the OCS exam and clinical practice, because if you're like me, a large percentage of the patients sent to me for patellofemoral pain are teenagers and are often told terrible things like, you have arthritis, and you should stop running and playing sports, and you'll probably end up needing a knee replacement really young. 
And although there is some link between patellofemoral pain and patellofemoral OA, it is not at all causational. So far, the available prospective studies show that although individuals with patellofemoral pain are likely to have chronic and recurrent issues, especially if not treated early, they are not necessarily more likely to be diagnosed with patellofemoral OA. Furthermore, the only retrospective study examining a link between patellofemoral OA and adolescent presence of patellofemoral pain was done in individuals who had received patellofemoral arthroplasty, and compared to individuals receiving partial tibiofemoral arthroplasty, those patients reported a relatively higher rate of adolescent patellofemoral pain, instability, and trauma. Even still, only 22% of individuals who had a patellofemoral arthroplasty recalled having idiopathic patellofemoral pain. Suffice it to say, current evidence does not support that having patellofemoral pain can predict having patellofemoral OA and the need for arthroplasty later in life. Now on to risk factors. Here is a potentially surprising list of factors that do not put individuals at greater risk for patellofemoral pain. Height, weight, percentage body fat, Q angle, patellar mobility, and static knee valgus. There is conflicting evidence on whether ankle foot characteristics such as arch height, foot mobility, pronation, hindfoot, and forefoot angles are related to development of patellofemoral pain. Now here's the list of factors that are related to development of patellofemoral pain. Female sex, where one study found that female Navy cadets were over two times as likely to develop patellofemoral pain as their male counterparts. Sports specialization, where we see females who play only one sport are much more likely to develop patellofemoral pain. And knee isometric extension strength. Cross-sectional studies have shown that patellofemoral pain is also associated with weakness in the hip extensors, abductors, and external rotators. However, high-quality prospective studies have shown that hip weakness is likely a result of patellofemoral pain, or is at least developed along with patellofemoral pain, rather than being predictive of patellofemoral pain. Decreased flexibility in the quadriceps, hamstrings, and gastrocnemius is also found in individuals with patellofemoral pain, but not enough research has been done to show if this precedes anterior knee pain or not. Individuals with patellofemoral pain do typically exhibit altered mechanics as well, including decreased knee flexion with stair negotiation and dynamic valgus, or increased frontal plane projection angle, with single leg squat and jump landing. But only one study by Holden et al. in 2015 has found dynamic knee valgus and vertical jump landing to be predictive of patellofemoral pain in female athletes. To summarize this, if you were asked to address risk factors with a patellofemoral pain prevention plan, you would likely target females, especially adolescent females, and you would focus on educating them to participate in a variety of sports rather than specialization or single sport participation, and you would instruct them in an exercise program that targeted knee extensor strength primarily. Now on to prognosis. The CPG reads, individuals with a longer duration of symptoms, higher baseline pain severity, and poorer function were more likely to have negative outcomes or unfavorable recovery. 
end quote. However, no cutoffs for pain, duration, or functional measures have been established at this time. For the remainder of the episode, I'll follow the structure of examination and intervention given in the decision-making tree provided at the end of the CPG to talk about the rest of the CPG to help you ingrain that structure, as well as to give you some better organization to the information. The sequential components are 1. Medical screening, which should include psychological screening. 2. Diagnosis and classification of the condition. 3. Determination of irritability stage. 4. Outcome measures. And 5. Intervention strategies. Let's briefly talk about medical screening. I know you're no stranger to medical screening at this point, but I do want to provide the CPG's list of pertinent medical differential diagnoses to keep in mind. This includes tumors, dislocation, septic arthritis, arthrofibrosis, deep vein thrombosis, neurovascular compromise, fracture local or at the hip, and slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Of these, I think the most potentially tricky ones would be the tumor, such as an osteosarcoma, and the skiffy, as both can present as knee pain and would fit the age range we are often seeing for patellofemoral pain. Now on to diagnosis. The diagnosis of patellofemoral pain is made primarily with subjective report and functional movements. The most sensitive tests for patellofemoral pain are reproduction of retropatellar or peripatellar pain with squatting, pain with stair climbing and or descent, and pain with kneeling. All of these have moderate to high sensitivity and negative likelihood ratios, but low specificity, meaning that negatives in these tests should significantly decrease your suspicion of patellofemoral pain syndrome. The most specific test for patellofemoral pain is the eccentric step-down test, which has moderate specificity at 82% and moderate positive likelihood ratio at 2.3. So, when you put it all together, confident diagnosis of patellofemoral pain syndrome can be made with a combination of these three factors. 1. Report of retropatellar or peripatellar pain. 2. That pain is reproducible with squatting, stair climbing and descent, kneeling, prolonged sitting, or other activities that significantly load the patellofemoral joint. And three, and most importantly, exclusion of all other possible sources of anterior knee pain. Important considerations for other sources of anterior knee pain include patellofemoral OA, patellar tendinopathy, patellar subluxation or dislocation, tibial apophysitis, patellar apophysitis, or tibiofemoral issues. It's important also to keep in mind that hip OA can present with a primary complaint of knee pain, and don't forget to consider the lumbar spine. Also, the main differentiators I would look for to differentiate patellofemoral pain syndrome from patellofemoral OA are older age and loss of significant range of motion. Now we'll move on to classification and look at other useful exam measures that don't necessarily aid in diagnosis, but will aid in classification and subsequent intervention planning, as each of them will reveal an evidence-based objective deficit that has been shown to contribute to this condition. 
The authors give an expert opinion that patients be classified in one of four categories that are based somewhat loosely on impairments found in individuals with patellofemoral pain and subsequent treatment strategies. This is an initial attempt at a treatment-based classification system for patellofemoral pain. The categories are 1. Overuse and overload without other impairment, 2. Patellofemoral pain with movement coordination deficits, 3. Patellofemoral pain with muscle performance deficits, and 4. Patellofemoral pain with mobility impairments, which will subdivide into hypermobility, which actually is hypermobility of the foot, and hypomobility, which is of the patellofemoral joint, hip, and lower extremity musculature. This system has not been validated by a randomized controlled trial, but it does help prioritize interventions. Thus, it is especially important with this classification system to remember that patients may meet multiple criteria and may change over the course of care. Also, some of the criteria lead you to interventions that may have weaker evidence, and thus it still may be beneficial in those times to include other interventions with higher levels of evidence. The first category, overuse or overload without other impairment, will apply best to individuals without significant impairment that have irritated the patellofemoral joint due to training load factors. Two populations that are at high risk for developing patellofemoral pain related primarily to significant increase in patellofemoral load are military populations and recreational runners, who both often quickly increase magnitude and frequency of loading without proper recovery time. Classification in this category is made when the patient presents with signs and symptoms of patellofemoral pain syndrome, history of increase in load magnitude or frequency, and has reproduction of anterior knee pain with the eccentric step-down test, but no impairments that lead to other classifications. Classification of patellofemoral pain with movement coordination impairments is made based off of noting dynamic valgus on the lateral step-down test, where a score of greater than two points on the quality of movement scale indicates a positive test, and noting frontal plane valgus, also known as frontal plane projection angle, of greater than 10 degrees during single-leg squat. The lateral step-down test is performed from a 20-centimeter step and quality of movement is graded based on five criteria. Arm strategy, where removal of hands from the waist gives plus one. Trunk alignment, where leaning in any direction gives plus one. Pelvic plane, where loss of horizontal plane of the pelvis gives plus one. Knee position, where if the tibial tuberosity is medial to the second toe, plus one is given, and if the tibial tuberosity is medial to the medial border of the foot, plus two is given, and steady stance, where if the patient has to step down with the non-test leg, or if the patient move the foot from side to side, plus one is given. Again, greater than a score of two on the lateral step-down test, and a frontal plane projection angle of greater than 10 degrees on the single-leg squat are positive criteria for classification with movement coordination deficits. 
It is also important to note that excessive or poorly controlled knee valgus has not been shown to necessarily indicate weakness of lower extremity musculature, but rather a lack of motor control in this area, and thus should be addressed accordingly. Next, classification with patellofemoral pain with muscle performance deficits is made based off hip and knee isometric strength deficits. Each of these strength tests is to be performed with a handheld style dynamometer fixed by a static strap. First, the hip stability isometric test, or the hip sit, is recommended as a surrogate for posterior lateral hip muscle strength. This test is performed in the classic clamshell exercise position, with the hips at 45 degrees, knees at 90 degrees, and the hip abducted to 20 degrees. Individuals with patellofemoral pain demonstrated a 10% reduction in force production compared with those with healthy knees. Pertinent isometric hip and thigh muscle strength measures include hip abductors, external rotators, and extensors, as well as knee extensors and flexors. One study by Ferber et al. was able to derive cutoff scores for responders to hip and thigh strengthening. Strength for each is reported as a percentage of body mass. For abductors, the cutoff for men was less than 37% body mass, and for women was less than 30%. For hip external rotators, the cutoff for men is less than 13% body mass, and for women is less than 17% body mass. For hip extensors, the cutoff for men is less than 28% body mass, and for women is less than 30% body mass. And yes, you did hear me right. Apparently, at least in this study, pound for pound, women were expected to have stronger hip external rotators and extensors than men. For knee extensors, the cutoff for male responders is having less than 44% body mass, and for females is having less than 37% body mass. And there are no cutoffs established for knee flexors. Now, I don't expect you to have to know verbatim each of those strength ratios, but I mention them specifically to give you a good idea of how strong each of these muscle groups are supposed to be in relation to each other and in relation to body mass. The final classification is patellofemoral pain with mobility impairments. This section is subdivided into hypermobility, which is referring to foot hypermobility, not patellar hypermobility, which would be beyond the scope of this CPG, and hypomobility, which is referring to hypomobility in the patellofemoral and hip joints, and decreased lower extremity flexibility. For classification as hypermobility, they recommend foot mobility testing by measuring midfoot width in non-weight-bearing and weight-bearing. A difference of greater than 11 millimeters between non-weight-bearing and weight-bearing is considered hypermobile for this category, as those with greater than 11 millimeter difference demonstrated significantly greater improvements in pain with the use of foot orthoses compared to controls. They also recommend classification with hypermobility with a foot posture index score of greater than 6. I don't expect you to need to know the scale perfectly but know that a higher score indicates a greater pronation and hypermobility. Classification with hypomobility is made with a positive patellar tilt test for tightness of the lateral patellar retinaculum, decreased lower extremity muscle length, 
and or decreased hip internal or external range of motion. The patellar tilt test is the only patellar mobility test with as high as low to moderate reliability, which is still not great. While the many other patellar mobility tests have poor to fair reliability and have no diagnostic accuracy for patellofemoral pain. However, one study by Heim et al. did find specificity of 92% and moderate positive likelihood ratio with this test for individuals with patellar femoral pain. So a positive on the lateral patellar tilt test would be useful in ruling in patellofemoral pain. Cutoffs for decreased muscle length are as follows. For the hamstring, straight leg raise of less than 79 degrees, For gastroc length, ankle dorsiflexion with knee extended of less than 7.4 degrees. For soleus length, ankle dorsiflexion of less than 14.8 degrees. For quadriceps, prone knee flexion of less than 134 degrees. And for iliotibial band, an Ober's test with less than 11 degrees of hip adduction. Finally, there are no established cutoffs for hip internal or external range of motion. Before we move on, a quick note on other tests that are not recommended. You'll note I haven't mentioned anything about trying to visually assess whether the VMO is atrophied, as quad atrophy is only reliably measured by MRI and is always consistent across all of the vasti groups, not just the VMO. Nor have I mentioned looking to see whether the VMO is firing with the proper speed or quality, as discrepancy in the firing of the VMO is only perceptible in EMG studies. Not to mention the strong evidence that now exists that one cannot selectively activate the VMO, no matter how hard you squint or squeeze a ball while doing a long arc quad, or even with using EMG biofeedback. You just can't. I'll even get ahead of myself and mention that even electrical stimulation to the VMO or EMG biofeedback to the VMO during quad exercise does not improve outcomes in individuals with patellofemoral pain. So please, if you haven't already, stop with the VMO nonsense. I mean, uh, while you're taking the OCS exam, don't select a VMO activation option. Now for outcome measures. For patient-reported measures, the CPG gives A-level recommendation for the use of the Kajula anterior knee pain scale and the Coos patellofemoral subscale, which was developed specifically for patellofemoral pain and osteoarthritis. Both of these are scored out of 100 and are measures of function, with a higher score meaning higher function and less disability. Though I doubt you'll need to know them for the test, the MCID for the AKPS is a range between 8 and 10, and the MCID for the Coos patellofemoral subscale is 14.2. Additionally, they give A-level recommendation for the use of the visual analog scale for worst pain and usual pain, or the visual analog scale for activity, also known as the EPQ, where six activities are rated on the VAS and summed for a total score. The six activities are walking, running, squatting, sitting, ascending stairs, and descending stairs. For physical performance measures, they give B-level recommendation for functional movements that reproduce the patient's familiar anterior knee pain 
or allow assessment of lower limb movement coordination, such as squatting, step down, and single leg squat. Now let's finally get on to interventions. As I already mentioned, the classification system has not been validated with RCTs and thus is primarily used to help categorize presentations by pertinent objective measures and to prioritize interventions. There is strong A-level recommendation for combined interventions, so don't take this classification to mean you should only perform the interventions listed in that classification. For the overload or overuse without other impairment category, remember, we are talking about individuals who only have pain because of an increase in training magnitude or frequency. Thus, interventions for this category are going to involve calming things down. For this group, there is B-level recommendation for patellar taping, an expert opinion or F-level recommendation for activity modification and relative rest. The patellar taping recommended with the best evidence is the tailored McConnell-style taping aimed at supporting patellar tilt, glide, and rotation, which has been shown to provide large reduction in pain. In contrast, untailored, simple, medially directed taping produces only immediate small pain reductions. Taping is recommended in combination with exercise to enhance outcome in the short term, such as for four weeks, but may not be beneficial in the long term. While patellar taping is recommended, patellar bracing, such as knee brace with patellar block, sleeve, or patellar strap, is not. Importantly, Taping techniques with the aim of enhancing muscle function, such as to improve vastus medialis activation, is not recommended in the treatment of patellofemoral pain. For patients classified as patellofemoral pain with movement coordination impairments, the main C-level recommendation is for gait and movement retraining. Now, this recommendation is based solely on research for running gait retraining in runners, so it does appear to have a limited application. Clinicians may use running gait retraining for runners with patellofemoral pain that includes multiple sessions of cueing to adopt a forefoot strike pattern for rear foot strike runners, cueing to increase running cadence, or cueing to reduce peak hip adduction while running. It is important to note that the highest quality RCT that this recommendation is based off of also included patient education on load management, including to avoid hills and reducing run session volume while increasing run session frequency. And the comparison groups of education on load management alone and combined hip and knee exercise plus load management education were just as effective. Beyond running gait retraining, there is not specific movement retraining recommendation for improving mechanics with other functional movements. This research just hasn't been done. But it is important to note that in many of the studies supporting strength training, they are typically instructing and cueing proper performance with exercise that mimic functional tasks such as squatting and step-ups. There is, though, a B-level recommendation against adding visual biofeedback during lower extremity strengthening to improve alignment and found no significant difference in mechanics or outcomes with patellofemoral pain in groups that had visual biofeedback and groups that just had traditional cueing. 
For the muscle performance deficits category, there is A-level recommendation for a combination of hip and knee targeted exercise in the treatment of patellofemoral pain syndrome to reduce pain and improve patient-reported outcomes and functional performance in the short, medium, and long term. Combined hip and knee exercise is superior to knee-targeted exercise alone, and hip exercise should target the posterior lateral hip musculature. Both weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing knee-targeted exercises have been found to be effective. There is also some evidence for giving preference to hip-targeted exercise in the early stages of treatment of patellofemoral pain. Now for the patients classified as mobility impairments in the foot hypermobility category. There is A-level recommendation for prefabricated foot orthoses for those with greater than normal pronation to reduce pain in the short term up to six weeks. This should be combined with exercise therapy. Also, there is not sufficient evidence to recommend custom foot orthoses over prefabricated. Now, although in the CPG this is recommended for individuals with greater than normal pronation, it's important to note that there are studies that have had success with prefabricated orthoses with groups that have greater than normal foot mobility, less than normal foot mobility, and when groups regardless of foot mobility. So all that to say, you might still look at this regardless of what their foot looks like. This section in the decision tree also includes the B-level patellar taping recommendation, which is a little odd considering they're saying this is a foot hypermobility section, but oh well. Last, and actually least, are the recommendations with the foot mobility impairments with hypomobility category. For this category, there are only expert opinion or F-level recommendations for lower extremity stretching of shortened muscle groups and for mobilization directed to the lateral patellar retinaculum and surrounding soft tissue. There are no studies that have compared stretching to other established treatment methods. However, the studies that support the combined interventions recommendation, which received A-level recommendation, do include stretching. So I think it's safe to say that there is no evidence that supports stretching as a standalone treatment, but rather it can be used alongside established interventions like hip and knee strengthening exercises when those muscle length deficits do exist. With regard to lateral patellar retinacula mobilization, the only studies that included similar treatments found no standalone benefit in the treatment of patellofemoral pain and the only studies that found any benefit were in combination with multimodal treatment, including exercise. In fact, the CPG gives an A-level recommendation against manual therapy directed at the lumbar spine, tibiofemoral, or patellofemoral joints as a standalone treatment. So I think the only reason this is included in the decision-making tree is that there is evidence for the patellar tilt test, and they felt the need to include an intervention that addressed this objective deficit. As a side note, on the test, when you are given a case, you should always take into account addressing the objective deficits in the case, rather than just going with the strongest level of evidence. But with patellofemoral pain, I would say you should probably be careful with selecting any intervention over hip and knee directed strengthening exercise. 
The main exception for this might be if the irritability of the condition made the exercise choice given suboptimal. I'll repeat what I open this section by saying. The best evidence is for combined intervention, and the studies that found the best evidence for most of the treatments other than exercise had combined the intervention with some form of lower extremity strengthening. To finish up, we'll go through the intervention's recommendations again, adding in any not mentioned in the decision-making tree, and I'll be listing them from strongest evidence for to weakest evidence for, and then from strongest evidence against to weakest evidence against. There is a level recommendation for combined hip and knee targeted exercises, with hip exercises targeting the posterior lateral hip and knee exercises including weight-bearing or non-weight-bearing knee extension exercise, and preference to hip targeted exercise in the early stage of treatment. There is a level recommendation for combining exercise therapy with other interventions such as foot orthoses, patellar taping, patellar mobilizations, and lower limb stretching. There is a level recommendation for prescribing prefabricated foot orthoses for patients with greater than normal pronation to reduce pain in the short term, but should be combined with exercise. There's B-level recommendation for tailored patellar taping in combination with exercise to assist in immediate pain reduction and to enhance outcomes of exercise therapy in the short term. There is C-level recommendation for running gait retraining consisting of multiple sessions of cueing to adopt a forefoot strike pattern, cueing to increase running cadence, or cueing to reduce peak hip adduction while running. There is C-level recommendation that clinicians may use acupuncture, where they are allowed to practice this, but strong caution is given that the superiority of acupuncture over placebo or sham is not known. There is F-level recommendation that patients may use blood flow restriction plus high-repetition knee exercise therapy while monitoring for adverse events for those with limiting painful resisted knee extension. There is F-level recommendation for patient education, including education on load management, body weight management when appropriate, and the importance of adherence to active treatments like exercise therapy, biomechanics that may contribute to the relative overload of the patellofemoral joint, and evidence for various treatment options, as well as education regarding kinesiophobia. Now for the against recommendations. There is A-level recommendation against the use of manual therapy as a standalone treatment and against the use of dry needling. There is B-level recommendation against the use of patellofemoral knee orthoses or bracing, against the use of EMG biofeedback on vastus medialis activity to augment knee extension exercise, and B-level recommendation against the use of visual biofeedback on lower extremity alignment during hip and knee targeted exercises. To finish up today, let's revisit our question. A 14-year-old female presents with pain in the front of her left knee that she described as achy pain under her kneecap. She reports that track and field season started two weeks ago, her coach is having her do high jump, which she has not done previously, and she jumps off her left foot. 
She is also running the 200 meter and the 400 meter. She now reports having pain going up and down the stairs and when sitting in class, in addition to her track and field activities. On the NPRS, her usual pain is about 4 out of 10, and pain at its worst is 7 out of 10, which is when she goes downstairs. Which of the following would be the most appropriate initial treatment? A. Prefabricated foot orthoses. B. Forward step-down exercises. C. Tailored patellar taping. And D. Patellar medial glide mobilizations. As questions on the OCS exam will be, this question has almost all right answers. Option A, prefabricated foot orthoses, has A-level evidence, but there's nothing here that indicates the patient has foot hypermobility issues. Option B, forward step-down exercises, is tempting because it is a hip or knee targeted exercise, which has the strongest evidence for patellofemoral pain. However, the patient's current level of irritability poses an issue with the high level of patellofemoral loading in a step-down exercise. Also, the patient gets significant pain with that exact activity. Option D is the easiest option to rule out, as there is no evidence that patellar mobility is a problem, and because this is not an intervention that has any significant evidence. The correct answer is C, tailored patellar taping. This is the best option for a couple of reasons. First, this best matches the stage of irritability of the options listed, as this pain appears to be relatively acute in duration and in symptom severity. The case also describes a good example of someone who fits the overuse or overload category, for which the intervention with the highest level of evidence is patellar taping. It's also important to note that with questions like this, it is not asking for the only treatment you would do, but rather the initial or very first thing you would do. After you tape this patient, you could then have a pain-free way to do the hip or knee strengthening exercises that you want to do. That wraps up this episode of the OCS Field Guide podcast covering the 2019 Patellofemoral Pain Clinical Practice Guideline. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.